Okay, we're learning that Kuf Yud, starting right from the top. We're continuing with all the things that Admon said, the seven things that Admon taught, the Chacham disagreed with him. So here we go. Someone has a Shtar Chov, which means it's a, it says in the document that someone owes him money. So he brings it out against the person who's named in the Shtar. The other one, this borrower, he brings out a deed of sale, which shows that the lender, after he had lent, after he had lent him the money, he had afterwards, he had sold him a field. And we showed him, explained that he sold him the field after the loan was due. So in other words, Ruvain lent Shimon money. The loan becomes due, whatever it is, 30 days later. And Shimon hadn't yet paid back. And then Shimon's holding a document that says that Ruvain sold him a field. Ruvain had sold him a field. So Admon Omer, Admon, so you would say, what does one have to do with the other? He lent the money. Shimon still owes Reuven the money. It happens to be Reuven sold him a field. Very good. But Abon says, no, Yahweh Shimon, the borrower, can make him the following claim. The Shimon can tell Reuven as follows. If your star was really accurate, it wasn't a forged star, and it was really true that I owed you money. You should have, for sure, human nature is that you should have gone after your, your debt instead of selling me something. In other words, if you were doing a business deal with me after the loan was due, don't you think you surely would have made sure to recover your money from me for the debt before you would sell me something? So the very fact that you sold me something after the loan was due, according to what the document says, you know what that proves? That proves that the entire document is a forgery. And the whole thing is wrong, and I don't have to pay you back. And the, the proof that it's a forgery, normally you can't tie that a star is a forgery. That's the whole power of a star. But, but, but in this scenario where there's another document, it's kind of conflicting it because the document is saying that Reuven sold something to Shimon afterwards, so there's no way Reuven would do that and not recover his debt first. They could say, no, actually the lender was very smart to sell him the land. Now he can use it as security, meaning when somebody owes you money, it's in the borrower, what could he do? He could conceal all of his movable properties and make it very hard to collect. So therefore, the lender sold him a field. The field can never be hidden, right? It's real estate. And that's a secure source to eventually collect from. So it's almost like the home were saying the opposite. What, why is it a conflict? Just because Shimon owes him money, that's not a reason for Rufay not to sell him a field. He'll sell him the field very comfortable and actually make sure he always has a security by which to collect the loan. So the Gemara tries to analyze better. My time to Rabbanon Shaper Kamar Adam. What's the reason for the Rabbanon? Adam seems to be saying very good. It seems to be a false, a false star. It's going against the lender's claim if he in fact sold him something afterwards. It would seem to be that the human nature should be that um, to get money, to get money uh, in, instead for your debt, instead of making a, a new deal with, with, with the borrower. So the Gemara explains, If it's a place where the practice is that you pay and then you write the documents, let's just understand something first. Let's just try to get over this. When there's a transaction in a field, usually there's two things that's going to happen. There's going to be a kesef, a transfer of money, which can, again, the Kenyan can come through the castle for the star. But the point is, there's two things that's going to happen. There's going to be money and there's going to be a deed. The deed of sale is going to be transferred. But which one do you do first? Do you give the money first and then you give over the star, write a star? Or is it the opposite? You write a star and then you pay. So if it's a place where the first thing that's done is the money. So here, you got to be a real fool. If the borrower gave you money, so you could just seize that money for yourself and say, hey, actually, I'm recovering this for the debt and I'm backing out of the deal of the sale. So why didn't he do that? So then everybody agrees. Everyone would agree that the borrower says to the lender, if I give you cash and instead of keeping it for your debt, instead you kept it as the money for the sale and you followed through and you gave me a document you were selling me, clearly that proves that the, I didn't owe you money. So if it was that scenario where cash was handed over before the deed was handed over, 
And instead of keeping, instead of recovering your, your, your debt with that, you used it and proceeded with the sale. That is clear that uh, must be there is no debt. Keep where is the case where there's a machlok? It's the location when you first write the deed and then you give over the money. So in that case, the lender doesn't really have that leverage the, 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 because the lender is only going to get cash after the deed was already handed over. So he doesn't have that ability to take the cash and, say, and then say, oh, I'm backing out of the deal and keeping the field for myself. So... The simple, the simple thing, oh, you should have kept the money for, for yourself, for your debt, isn't really there. So what's Admon saying? You know, now we can understand the Chacham. So what's Admon really saying in this case? In this case, you, you don't really have that leverage. The lender only gets the cash after he already gave the deed of sale over to the borrower. So what, what exactly is the borrower's claim here? So Admon says, you should have made a notice before the sale about what his intent was. Meaning to say... He, 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 the, he should have told Adim, basically, he really wants his debt back. The only, re, the only thing he would be doing here is, um, he, he, evidently, it's hard to get it, and he wants to make sure that this guy has a field by which to collect. But how come he's not being Toveh, the debt? You know, it's a funny thing. He's making a sale instead of asking for his money back. So the shot in the whole thing is, right, oh, he's trying to get him something by which he can collect at a later point. But he should have informed Adim of that, because if he doesn't inform Adim of that, then it seems the very fact that he's making a sale as opposed to demanding his money back, that itself is almost an admission that he doesn't owe, that the money's not owed. So if he really is owed money, he should have informed Adim that don't misinterpret my sale. Don't misunderstand that my sale is an admission that there's no debt. If he didn't do that, that itself demonstrates that there's a falseness in the claim of, of, of the money being owed. No, you know why he doesn't do that? Every friend has a friend. So once you tell somebody it's going to spread further and it will reach the ears of the borrower who's buying it. He'll refuse to buy the land because he won't, he won't want to have a property that now Ruvain's going to go and collect from later. So we're basically saying Ruvain wanted to make sure that Shimon would have a property so that he could go collect movables. He could always, you know, hide. So, so that's why his real intent in selling is not shot. He's trying to sell it as opposed to collecting his debt. The opposite. He's trying to sell it so that he can make sure he can go collect from the field. Just it's a whole trick of the way he's doing it. He doesn't want to disclose his true, his true intentions because then he's scared Shimon won't, 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 won't actually go through and buy it. So bottom line is, it's in a situation where he doesn't have the option of keeping the money up front for his debt because the money only comes to him after the deed was transferred. But the machlokas is, is the failure to go demand the debt itself an admission or not? That is the machlokas. All right, we plunge weiter here. The last one. You have two people who have a shtarchov one against the other. Meaning Ruvain has a document that he lent money to Shimon. Comes to Shimon, you owe me money. You know what Shimon does? Shimon whips out a star, says, I lend money to Ruvain. So basically the question is, do they cancel out? And that's the Shiloh here. If, 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 do we say that if, if I have a document, you owe me money, and you have a document that are the opposite, that, that you lend me the money, so how do we deal with that? Admon says that the borrower, the, the borrower Shimon says to Ruvain, I don't understand. If, if I really owed you money, how in the world would you borrow money from me? Meaning, instead of borrowing money from me, you should demand payment from me, right? What's going on? You have a document that says you lent me money. Then afterwards, you're going to go and borrow money from me? If I have cash, what should you do? You don't borrow the money. You shouldn't be lending. You should say, give me my money because I lent you money. So, so if you didn't do that, instead you borrowed money from me, the fact that you borrowed money from me is a proof that your claim that you lent me money is false because then you would never have borrowed money from me afterwards. You would always just take my money. Right. Before we were talking about the fact that he sold him a, a property. Why are you selling the property? Keep the money for yourself in terms of the loan. And here we're saying, if you borrow money from me, right, that's itself proof that, uh, yeah, definitely, I'm on the Chitaso. 
Reuven collects the loan and Shimon collects the loan. So there's two points that the Rabbanon are making. First of all, they're saying, don't assume that you wouldn't borrow money as opposed to collecting it. It's not true. You don't say the fact that I borrowed money is proof that, that, that I didn't lend you money. That, that's A. B is, assuming that both are true, it's a still a second novelty that Rabbanon is saying, you actually execute both. I collect and you collect. We don't just say they cancel out. So two points here. Number one is that it's not an admission that the document is false. The fact that I, lent, that I borrowed money from you doesn't prove that I didn't lend money to you. And the other point is we don't say in the collection they cancel out. Rather, we say both of them collect. So here we go. First, we're going to quote now from the Amaram, and then we're going to come back to the Mishnah. Itmar was said, two people have Tarchov one against the other. Seemingly, you know, Mamish, like a case like this. Rashi gives it, Reuven is lending money to Shimon on the first of Nisan. And then a month, of, a month later, on the, on the first of the year, Reuven is borrowing the same amount of money from Shimon. So it's, it's very interesting. Now the both, both loans are due, and they both come to Basin. So Reuven is saying Shimon owes the money, Shimon is saying Reuven owes the money, and it's the same amount. So if Nachman says, we collect both. We make collections from both ends. Reuven collects from Shimon, Shimon collects from Reuven, even though it's the same amount of money. Why are you switching bags? Meaning, this is ridiculous, right? If you're holding two bags, and they both have equal weight, is that, do you gain anything from switching with hand, switching from right to left? No, it's the same way. So to here, Right? If Reuben owes Shimon a certain $100 and Shimon owes Reuben $100, what's the point of taking $100 from both? This one keeps his property. This one keeps his property. Now, we're going to get specific here. In the case where it's not cash, they don't have cash, so we have land. Remember, from real estate, there's different qualities. There's inferior, there's, 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 there's mediocre, there's like in the middle, and then there's superior. It's called Zaburus, Benunus, Edis. And the law is that normally a Valchov collects from the middle type of quality. He collects from Benunus. So the Gemara explains, if the, if the idea is that each one of them only owns superior land, meaning Reuven only has amazing land, and Shimon only has superior land, or Benoist or Benoist, or Zibors or Zibors, both have average, or both have the same inferior. In other words, everything is equal about each other. Then, of course, everybody agrees, right? no, there's no point in switching the bags. Everybody is going to agree that you shouldn't practically collect payment. Keep pleaking, where do they disagree? The case is one, one of them owns average land, the other one owns a lower quality. So Rav Nachman Savar, Zagava Zagova. It's in the interest for both of them to collect. Why? Why is it? Because Savar Bishaloi and Shaman, he holds that when we talk about what the quality of land is, it's all relative to what else you own. Meaning, Halacha is Bauchov Gova Bebenonis, right? But how do I determine Bebenonis? Is it your land? relative to the rest of the world or your land relative to other fields that you own. Which one is it? So Rav Nachman holds that it's your field relative to other fields that you own. The halakha is that you collect from average quality. It means average relating to other properties you have. Let's say you, have, you own properties that would generally be considered either average or inferior. But the, your average, if it's the best you have, then it's called the idis. It's called the su- most superior thing, and you can't take it away. The halacha is about chov can only take average means average according to Rav Nachman relative to what you have. So if it's your best, even though relative to the rest of the world it's average, Rav Nachman holds you, they, that, that it wouldn't be collected by a balchov. So in this case, what happens? One guy has, has benonis and one guy has ziburis. So all zibal ziburis govelu benonis. The owner of the ziburis first he should come and collect the other person's average land. So now what happens? One, we, now the Baal Zibur is holding two things. He's having an average land and an inferior land. But his average land relative to his properties, it's the best he has. Obviously, it is. It's the best thing he has. Therefore, when the other guy comes to collect, the other guy comes to collect his debt, he collects the total inferior land. 
So let's just give some names to here. Ruvain owned the really the weak stuff, the Ziburah. Shimon only had the average, and Shimon had average land. So Ruvain goes and collects the average land first. So now Ruvain goes and he's the owner of Ziburis and Benonis. So now when Shimon goes to collect from Ruvain, he can't take the average field because to Ruvain, that average field is the best he has. So instead, Shimon is going to take the inferior property. So who gained? It makes sense that Ruvain ends up gaining because he originally had an inferior field. And after, after all the collections are done, he's left with an average field. So they don't, they don't, they don't cancel out. So that's all according to Rav Nachman, because Rav Nachman holds that Reuven would stand to, gam- to gain by doing this. However, we switch He holds that we always assess the quality relative to other people. When I determine if you collect Bimenonis, it's all clapping relative to the rest of the world. So therefore, it's not going to make a difference. So, so, the end result would be the same. If Reuven originally had Ziburis, but once he takes, Ru- once he takes Shimon's Bainonis, when Shimon comes to collect, what's he going to take? He could take that ban on his back. Ah, it's the best that Ruvain has. Yeah, but relative to the rest of the world, it's, it's, it's in the average. So since it's relative to the rest of the world, Shimon's going to take his ban on his right back and we're going to be right back to where we started. So it's not going to help Ruvain to go collect from Shimon's ban on his first because Shimon will go and take that ban on his right back. So therefore, there's no point in going through and taking it and taking it back. Just keep it where it is. So therefore, ban on his ban on will take back his own average land. All right, so very good. So we understand the machlokas, whether or not Ruvain originally owned Ziburis, Shimon only owned Benonis. Would Ruvain gain if he went and he collected first Shimon's Benonis? So Reb Nachman holds B'Shalohin Shaman. So therefore he would gain because Shimon now can only take his Ziburis. Ashesha holds that B'Shal Adamin Shaman. So therefore there's nothing for Ruvain to gain. But the Gemara still has a question on this, an obvious question. This whole thing only makes sense if the guy with the inferior land goes and collects first. But my Why do you say that the owner of the inferior land comes to collect first? Let the owner of the average land come first and collect the inferior land. Take the Ziburis, and then it will be taken right back to him. If Shimon was one collecting first, he had the Benonis. So he goes to Reuven, Reuven only has Ziburis. And he takes Reuven's inferior field. So now Shimon becomes the owner of a Benonis and a Ziburis. When Reuven collects, he would have to only take back his own Ziburis because the, the, the average land is the best that, that Shimon has. He can't take it. So it still could be switching bags. How do you know which one came first? So the Gemara explains, Rachman was talking about a case where it happens to be that Reuven collected first. Reuven made the first claim. Reuven made the first claim, and that's why he's collecting first. But says the Gemara, that's not the, even if he made the claim first, so he also make them when they're actually coming to collect, they're coming together. That's the case of the Mishnah, is that neither had collected, and both are holding their shtaros, and they're coming to the court. So even if one made the claim first, but the actual collection is happening at the same time. So how do you know Reuven should collect before Shimon versus Shimon collecting before Reuven? So the Gemara has to modify what the case is. Ella, rather, lo what is the case? One what, with a twist here. This is the Chad Idis Vibenos. One owns an Idis, a real superior land, and an average. This is the Chad Ziburis, and the other one only owns inferior land. Marasar Vishalon Shaman, Rav Nachman holds, we assess based upon equality to your own relative to your other properties. So in this case, let's make it Ruven owns the inferior land. Ruven owns the, the Ziburis. Shimon owns average and really good land. So Reuven would always benefit, no matter, whichever way the collection comes, first or second, Reuven is always going to benefit. If Reuven collect first, he's going to take Shimon's average land. 
And when Shimon collects, he's going to have to accept the inferior plot because the average land is Ruvain's best now. And if it's the other way around, where Shimon collects first, he's going to take Ruvain's inferior land because, um, because, because that's all he has. That's the truth. That's all he has. And now that Shimon has all three types, Ruvain will be able to take the average property. So either way, Ruvain's going to end up getting an average grade quality and Shimon's going to collect from an inferior quality. So that all makes sense. According to Rav Nachman, that it makes sense to follow through. Again, Shimon would have uh, uh, Idis and Benonis, Reuven only has Ziburis, so either way, whoever collects first, Reuven stands to gain. Reuven stands to gain. Umar says there's no point in, in, in switching. He holds we assess it relative to the property of everybody else. So therefore, um, since we assess it relative to everybody else, Reuven will be taking Shimon's average land, but Shimon will then always be able to take the average, the average, land, uh, the average land back. So therefore, there's no point in switching back and forth. Okay, so the Gemara, now that we understand the Machlokes, the Gemara says, what did the Mishnah say? Right? It seems to be so clear. Tanan, what did the Mishnah say? Chomer Zegova Zegova. The Chomer say that the loans don't cancel out. It's not an admission that my claim is false. And second of all, each one collects. So this is clearly like Rav Nachman against Rav Sheshis. Taking Rav Nachman, leave with Rav Sheshis. Rav Nachman defends Rav Sheshis. He's talking about a case, one guy borrowed for a term of 10 years, the other one borrowed for a term of only five years. So the loans don't cancel because they're not owed at the same time. So in other words, we're talking about a case that the 10-year loan wasn't, wasn't owed by the time the two parties appeared in court. So therefore, after the one who borrowed money for 10 years has collected the money owed to him, he wouldn't have had to pay it right away. He would be able still to keep it for the, for the duration of the 10-year period. So everybody would agree that each party should pay at the respective time. The whole idea of Rosh that they cancel out switching bags is only if they're both owed together. The mission was talking about where they weren't owed together. Says the Dami, what's exactly the case? If you say that the first borrower, Shimon, borrowed for 10 years, and Ruben borrowed for five years. So basically we're saying Ruben lent Shimon for a 10-year loan and then whatever it was, a certain amount of time later, he borrowed money from Shimon for five years and, uh, and we're appearing in court before the 10-year loan had expired. But in that case, Admon wouldn't make any sense. What was Admon saying? If you really owed me the money, if I really owed you the money rather, why would you borrow money from me? That was Admon's whole claim. But that's not a good point, because it wasn't yet due. If, if, if Ruven lent Shimon for a 10-year loan, it's not a conflict for Ruven then to borrow from Shimon for a five-year loan, because it's not a weird thing to do if Shimon doesn't owe Ruven the money back for a longer time. So it's not a tie on Ruven. Why didn't you collect the loan? What are you doing borrowing money? I mean, I had to, and the borrowing money that I did from you was for a small duration of time. The case is the first borrower, Shimon, Reuben, Reuben lent to Shimon for only five years. And then Reuben borrowed for 10 years. So basically, Reuben lent Shimon for five years. At the end of those five years, he borrows from Shimon for 10 years. So now, now we understand it, whether or not, whether or not we say both that, that it's valid or it's an admission. Why don't you just collect your money from me? And the Gemara explains the case a little bit further. We analyze further. If the loan was due before Reuven took it, my time at Rabbanan. What would the reason for the Rabbanan mean? Meaning, if Reuven lent Shimon for five years and then the loan was due, and then instead of going and taking money from Shimon, Reuven borrowed money for 10 years, that's ridiculous. Obviously, everybody would agree that that's an admission that he didn't owe him money. The first loan was not yet due. So he couldn't have demanded payment if it time wasn't there. My time is Amun. What would the reason for Amun be? So the Gemara explains, The case is Reuven came to borrow from Shimon on the very day that the five-year term was over. So Reuven first lent Shimon money for five years. For right a day before he could claim his money, Mamish, on that day, Reuven comes and borrows money from Shimon for 10 years. So is that proof 
that, 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 that the original five-year loan is not true. Because why didn't you just wait a day? Why don't you just wait one day and take the money and take the money he owes you? Why are you borrowing money? The Rabbanans say it's not a proof because sometimes a person borrows money for only one day. You might need money specifically today. And you can't wait a day. So if I can't wait a day, so I had to borrow money today. I, tomorrow I can demand payment from you, but today I needed the money. A person doesn't borrow money for only one day. And therefore the fact that you borrow the money now, that is proof that the original loan was not true. Another way to reconcile the Chachamim with Rav Sheshesh, the Mishra could be talking about with orphans. In other words, one of the people died. Reuben lent Shimon money, Shimon lent money, and Shimon lent Reuben money, but one of them, one of the parties died, and it's the Yisomim who are looking the money. The law is that orphans collect payment on loans that their father made. But we don't collect payment from them. Meaning, the loans, the reason why they're not canceling each other in the Mishnah is because only one of them is collectible. Rashesh is a whole far as why do I move bags is because you collect from both. But in our Mishnah, the reason, the reason, the reason that you, we don't, they don't cancel is because the one we're dealing with, Yisomim. Yisomim don't have to pay back from their father's thing, um, don't have to pay back from their father's thing from cash. So the Gemara explains, but that's Shver, because the Mishnah said they both collect. So the Gemara says, The Mishnah just means the orphan actually collects, and the other ones should collect, but don't have the property to collect from. That's what it means. There's two things that are wrong with that. First of all, the literal language of the Mishnah is wrong. It says they both collect. It's mashma that that's actually happening. Why can't they at least get land from the orphans? Because let them give land to the orphans, even if the orphans don't have cash to pay back their father. They don't have to pay back from cash, but they have to pay back from something that they collect from their father. So let's first pay back the orphans. And then we go collect back from them. If orphans collect land as payment for a debt owed to their father, once they get the land, then a creditor of the father could collect from them. Even though you some don't have to pay back from cash, they have to pay back from land that they got from the father. So even if they got it from the father only because of a debt owed to the father, then a creditor of the father could collect from that land. So as soon as the debt is paid back to the Arshim with land, and then the credit, they can go back and collect. So if it's really true, like Rav, Rav Shesha said, that and why in the Mishnah are they both collecting? So the Gemara says, Kasha, this indeed is difficult. Says the Gemara one question, why don't we say that the Mishnah is talking about that the Yarshim only own inferior land? It's the other, the other party who's owed the money. They have superior and average land. First, the Yusomim go and they collect the average land. But then, they only have to pay him from inferior land. There's a new rule. From the, whenever you collect from orphans, no matter what, you only collect inferior land. Meaning, even though a borrower normally you collect from average land, the law is, from the Takana of Yusomim, who made a law, that whenever Yusomim are paying back their father's land, from, from the land they got from their father, they only pay back from inferior stuff. A new kula for Yusomim. So that's why in the Mishnah, it's that Gova Zagova, if you're talking about Yusomim. Normally, I say, why should I switch bags? Because there, it's going to be banerness anyway. But here, we're talking about Yusomim. Yusomim will, will, will only collect from them, take away, take away their, their we're only going to take away their, uh, their ziburis. So maybe that's why they're both collecting. But Kumar says, that Allah, that you only take inferior land from the orphans, that's only true, ideally, initially. Before the creditor sees it, you would say, oh, only go and take the inferior. If he already took away the average land, he already took it, and there's no need to return it. Meaning, the law is, out of sympathy to the orphans, don't collect from inferior land. But if Lamaisa, the creditor, took average land, you would let him keep it, because he's really owed that.
So in our Mishnah, it's like he already seized it because the, the creditor of the Isomim has right now average land. What do I saying? They both owe each other money, so, so, so one goes and collects and one goes and collects, or do they just cancel out? So basically we're saying if the whole reason why to go collect is because the Isomim only are owed average land, or only can be collected from them the inferior land, not average land, but right now the creditor is holding average land. So you would let him keep it and there would be no point of going and switching. So that's why we had the difficulty with Rav Sheshis. If you really hold Afuchamatrasulamali, we had difficulty reconciling with the Mishnah. So bottom line is, in the Mishnah, in a scenario where there's two chos, one unto the other, we're explaining it's a case where we borrowed money. Reuven lent Shimon money for five years, and right on the day that the five years were over, then suddenly Shimon is lending money to Reuven, and we're trying to figure out if that's an admission that the first thing wasn't owed or not. That's a machlokas Abram and the Chachamim. According to the Chachamim, it's not an admission. It said, this one collects and this one collects. It seemed to be against Rav Sheshish's opinion. Rav Sheshish's opinion, his whole thing, is that when two people owe, people owe each other money, just cancel out. There's no point in collecting one other against the other. You're switching packages. It seems the simple pshah would be approved to Rav Nachman. All right, now we go to a new subject. We finish out on the Chacham and we go to wives and husbands fighting about where to live. So the Mishnah says, and there are three different, you know, like countries in Eretz Israel regarding marriage. Yehuda, Ever Yardin, and Galil. Three different regions. Yehuda, which is the south of Israel. Ever Yardin, the Jordan, right? Galil is the north of Israel. One cannot force his wife to move from a town in one to a town in the other. Meaning, you don't have a right to fight, to, you don't have a right to, to force your wife to move. That's the idea. From one country to the other, can't do that. From one city in one to a city in the other. Within the same, within the same land, you require her to move from one city to another city or from one town to another town. And in other words, if she refuses, you can, it's grounds for divorce and not to pay her the ksupa. Top of the Amabes. So basically the idea is a huge change. One country to the other, you can never force her to do. Within the same country, if it's a similar type City to city or town to town, you can make her move. Top of the base. You can never require her to move from a town to a city or from a city to a town. Because it's different. We'll see what there are advantages and disadvantages of living in a big city or a rural place. You can never force. You can require her to move from a bad dwelling place to a good dwelling place. You can't force her to go and downgrade. Meaning even if you're moving from a city to another um, if, even if you're moving from one city to another city, you can always, it's always, it always has to be like similar thing. You can't force it to go down in terms of the dwelling where you're going to be. No, not true. Even from a bad dwelling place to a good dwelling place, you cannot force her. It has to be similar. A good dwelling place, bodek a person. It tries a person. There could be something bad about living in a place that's better, that's better than what you're used to. We'll have to see what that's all about. So the Gemara analyzes. I understand that a wife doesn't have to move from a city, a big city, to a small little town. No one wants to live in a little town. In a city, you can find whatever you want, right? Urban areas are the best. But a town, you can't find everything. Why can't you force your wife to go from a town to a city? Isn't that an upgrade? How do I know that living in a city can be a difficult thing? They made a special bracha for those who pledged to live in Yerushalayim. Meaning, it wasn't so posture people wanted to live in a big urban area like Yerushalayim. They had to make a special blessing. So, there's such an idea. Some people prefer the peace, the quiet, the rural area. That's why you can't force. 
Shimon Gamliel, Gamliel says that husband cannot require his wife to move from a, a bad dwelling place to a good one. Sometimes a, a good dwelling place can try a person. So the Gemara says, what, what does it mean it tries them? My bodik. When you change routine, it brings stomach sickness. So basically, any change, even if it's a better change, it can harm a person. Really interesting idea. And the Gemara supports a person that change could be difficult. It says in the book of Ben Sira. So Ben Sira was a book. It's, it's, not, it's not in the Tanakh, but it's like a book of philosophy a little bit. So first we quote a Pasuk in Mishle, and then we'll get to what Ben Sira said. The Pasuk in Mishle says, All the days of a poor man are bad. So why, why are all the days bad? Certainly sometimes the Ani has what to eat. How could it say all the days are bad? Shabbos and Yontif are great. When you change your routine, it's bad for your stomach. So if you give an Ani a good piece of meat, he's not used to eating meat. What happens? Makes him sick. So that's the ultimate curse. That even on Shabbos and Yontif, the Ani is suffering. Ben Sira adds, it's not only true that the days are bad. Even the nights are bad. Meaning you would say normally at night, you're sleeping, right? It's great. Even the poor man can enjoy a good night's sleep. But Ben Sira says, no, even the nights are bad. Why is that? Because other, um, it's a different type of roof. He doesn't have a good roof. He can't, he doesn't have a, uh, a nice tall house. So what happens is, is that, is that if it's a rainy night, so basically, all, there's a lot of runoff from the other roofs onto his roof, and it's very disturbing. Rabbi Muhammad Carmo, and his, his, his vineyard is only at the very top of the mountain, and uh, that's not a good thing to, to be at the top of the mountain because the, 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 he's basically getting the worst place for a vineyard. So any fertilizer he brings to the top, the wind blows away. You want your vineyard to be on the bottom of the mountain. So, so that's what we continue and say. We just speak out these two points. From the rain from the other roots falls on his roof. May And all the soil from the other vineyards falls, from the soil from his vineyard falls onto the other vineyards, which are not good. So therefore, uh, the wind is active all, at all hours. And even in the night, he's thinking about all of his fertilizer falling away. So he's suffering and his anxiety of his mind was happening to his uh, vineyard in the middle of the night. Okay, here we go. Very important sugya about making aliyah, about going to Israel. Hakol A person can always force people in his family to go to Eretz Yisrael. Very interesting idea. In other words, a family is living outside of Israel, and the mother or father says, let's make aliyah. That everyone is forced to make aliyah with them, however inconvenient it seems. Right, so we were talking about in, in Israel. We were talking about three regions in Israel. Yehuda, Galil, Eva, Yarden, right? So those are all in Israel. And we're just saying... Oh, I want you to move from one place to another. Here we're talking about someone who's in America, and one person wants to make Aliyah, the whole family is forced to do it. You can never force anybody to leave Eretz Yisrael. Pashib Shad is, many of you should have learned, that you see from here is a mitzvah to live in Israel. That's what was, why do we force, right? What, do you, what compels a child to follow, the, to, to, to follow their parents to Israel? I mean, what is that? It must be there's a mitzvah. That's what many of you should have learned. And even in regard to Yerushalayim, everyone can force to go up to Yerushalayim, which is very interesting. Is there a specific mitzvah to live in Yerushalayim? It's like more chashim. It sounds like it. Even in Israel, you can never force someone to live in Yerushalayim. This is true for both men and women, meaning a wife could force her husband to go to Israel to live there. And if he refuses, then he has to divorce her um, and pay her the ksuba. Really interesting idea that it can come, it can be initiated from the wife just as much as from the husband. Continues the, continues the Mishnah. When a person marries a woman in Eretz Yisrael, and he divorces her in Israel, then very good. When you're paying her the, the payment of the Ksuba, it's given from the local region. You marry her and divorce in the same place in Israel. Clearly, the, the coins are going to come from the local coins of Israel. Whereas not you should write, so you marry a woman in Israel. But Gershah, the Kaputkia, he's divorcing her in a different place called Kaputkia. And the point is that the coins in Kaputkia have different, they're heavier coins. 
there's more value to the coins in Kaputkia than the, than the coins in Israel. So it's interesting. You committed to the Ksuba in Israel. But when you're divorcing, you're, you're paying, you're, you're divorcing her elsewhere. So what's the law? You can give her from the coins of Israel. You only have to give her from the place where you committed to pay from. You don't have to give her from the heavier coins where the divorce is happening. What about the inverse? He marries a woman in Kaputka, if he cares for Israel and he divorces her in Israel. Here, what's the halacha? You can give her the lighter coins of Israel. So here it's like the stira, right? You give her from the place you committed, from the place you're divorcing. Here, both ways, we're saying leniently, you always give the, lenient, you always give the smaller coins. So we're going to see in the Gemara why it is that way. No. In the last case, you have to give from the coins of Kapotkia, meaning he's mach, where he says, if you commit in Kapotkia, you have to give from the coins of Kapotkia, even if the divorce is happening in Israel. And we'll see in the Gemara what the dispute is about. However, everybody agrees, not that you should be Kapotkia, if you married her in Kapotkia, the Gersha be Kapotkia, and he divorced her in Kapotkia, then of course, not Kapotkia. The whole dispute is only where he uh, committed in Kapotkia, but he's divorcing in Israel. There, there's a dispute. But if both the marriage and the dispute happen in Kapotkia, clearly you're going to give from the most Kapotkia. So the Gemara says, we said, you can force everybody in the house to go up to Israel. What does it mean, everybody? What are you coming to include? Let it just say, you force the family. What does it mean, hakol? If you have a Hebrew slave that works for six years, you could force him to go to Israel with the rest of the people. It seems to be that there was an alternate, alternate text where it said specifically in the Mishnah that you could force your slave. So then we don't need the word hakol to include that. So according to that alternate gear, so what is the word hakol coming to include? It says, To go to Israel, you could force, even if you have a beautiful home in Chutzlar, you can force them to go to a downgraded home in Israel. Very interesting. So normally you can't force that, as we learned in the Mishnah. But to go to Israel, you can force the downgrade. He said, you can't force any of them to leave. What, what does it mean, anyone? What happens if you have a, a, a Kenani, a Kenani slave, he runs away from his master, who was living in Chutzars, and he runs to Israel. The slave is not forced to leave. We say to the master, sell the slave here in Israel, um, and, and then go back to Gullus if you want. But if not, the slave has the right to remain here. Because of the importance of settling Israel, once a slave runs, that's like the best way to get free. Run to Israel. And then your master either is forced to move to Israel with you or to sell you there. How come I'm Yushalayim? We could force all the members of Yushalayim. What are we coming to include? That's Let's say you have a beautiful place in Tel Aviv. If you move to Yushalayim, real estate is more expensive. You're going to have to go downgrade. You can force the downgrade. It could include someone who's moving from bad dwelling in Yushalayim to better dwelling outside of Eretz Yisrael. Even so, a person cannot be forced to leave Yushalayim. I, we already know this, because if I know that you can be forced to move to an inferior living Yerushalayim, certainly you can't be forced to reverse it. You're right, it's not a new novelty, but it's Agav. Since the beginning of the mission was talking about, about going up, so we speak about leaving Yerushalayim as well in the same thing. Continues the Gemara, Brisa records pretty much this echoes the ideas of the Mishnah. He wants to move to Israel. The wife does not want to move. We compel, her, we compel her to go up with him. And if she refuses, the husband has the right to divorce and not pay exuba, meaning it's grounds for divorce. Let's say it's the inverse. She wants to go up. The husband doesn't want to go up. And we, come, we, we try to force him to do it. If not, he must divorce her, meaning we honor her, her desire for Aliyah that she should go up. If the husband doesn't want, he divorces her and pays the exuba. And if it's the inverse, if they're about 
disagreeing to leave Israel. She wants to leave and he doesn't want to leave. We force her not to leave him. She won't, she, she won't remain in Israel. She leaves. She accepts the divorce without Aksuba. If he wants to leave, but she wants him not to leave. We force him not to leave him. He will not remain. Then he divorces her and gives Aksuba. All right. That just echoes what we learned in the mission. Now, we learned about the case where, about the, the monies, the currency in Israel and Kapotzkia is different. Kapotzkia, the coins are worth more. So first we said that whenever, whenever there's a switch for, between Israel and Kapotzkia, the Tanakhama said, you always give the lighter coins. So the Lord says, First you told me, if you married in Israel, divorce in Kapotzkia, you pay the lighter coins of Israel. And you see you go after the place of the obligation, where you commit, not the, time of the, not the place of divorce, but the place of, of marriage. But then what did the next line in the Mishnah say? Where it's the inverse, you married a woman in Kapotzkia, and you divorce in Israel, you also give the lighter coins. We go after the place of collection, not the place of commitment. So which one is it? How could it be the leniency both ways. So the Gemara says, We're talking about the leniency of Ksuba. The Tanakhama holds, The whole din of Ksuba is only rabbinic origin. So therefore the rabbis were lenient and they said, either way, you always give the lighter coins. Meaning you're right, it's a contradiction. That's one of the leniencies of Ksuba that you always give the lighter coins. That if you marry the woman Kapotzka and divorce her in Israel, no sin You have to give the heavier coins because he owes the Ksuvas Daraisa. That's good for the Machlokas. He owes the origins of Ksubar from the Torah. The Pasuk says, Kamoar Habasulos in the case of rape. So therefore, we assume that it's from the Torah. If it's from the Torah, you always have to give the heavier coins based upon the place where you commit. What do we say in the case of a regular debt? Someone has a star that someone owes him money. If the location where it was recorded was in Bavel, the borrower has to pay him from the coins in Bavel. If it was recorded in Israel, then you give him You pay him from the coins of Israel. Let's say the note didn't say where, where, what type of payment to come from. It didn't record where the location was. Then we say it all depends where... It's being collected. If it was if it was being collected in Bavel, the borrower pays from the coins of Bavel. It's produced in Israel. The borrower pays from the coins of Israel. Meaning, we kind of like assume that that's the reason it was left open. The price continues. Let's say it didn't say what currency. It just said, "Pay me back a hundred silver." But it didn't say silver what. Right? It didn't say, is it, is it, it, well, there's so many different denominations of, of currency. It didn't say, it just said, pay me back in silver. Whatever currency, whatever type of coin you want to give, you can give. Meaning like you could give the smallest amount. And the price concludes, Ksuba is not like that. So what is Ksuba not like? Ahoy, what is it referring to? Amar Shashim Arisha is going back on the first part of the Brisa. Lafu came to the Rabbi Shemukam Liel, Damar Ksuba Daraisa. Remember, he holds Ksuba was Daraisa. The first part of the Brisa implies the borrower has to pay back with the coins of the place where the debt is incurred, and it doesn't make a difference where it's collected. So the Tan of the Brisa says it's not like that with Ksuba. With Ksuba, you could always pay back whichever is the less valuable coins. That's the Kula of Ksuba. And that's not like Rabbi Shemukam Liel. Rabbi Shemukam Liel would say that Ksuba is Daraisa, and therefore you have to always pay back from the place where the ksuba, where the commitment was incurred. Okay, then we just analyze what the Bryce said at the end. We said, if you said 100 silvers, right? Didn't say what type of silver, you pay him back with whatever type of coin. First of all, the Gemara says, maybe the reason it didn't say a type of coin is because it's a bar, a bar of silver, meaning that's why it's saying, pay me back in silver. It didn't say what type of coin. That's what it must mean. There was a fixed price to the bars of silver, and that's what it means, pay me back in bars. No, it said, pay me back silver coins. 
But it didn't say what type of coins. But you know it's not the bars because it said the word coins. The question is just what type of uh, coins it is. Says Gmar of Ema Preeti. Maybe it means Preeti. Maybe it means a copper coin. If it just said coin, then maybe it could even be Prutus. Amar Papa Preeti, the Kaspel Avinchi. People don't make Prutus out of silver. Usually Prutus are out of, are out of um, copper. So it's the smallest type of a silver coin specifically. All right, now with the Gemaras are going to get all into the Milas, the values of living in Israel. Obviously, that, that's a flow of this sugya we just had about how the wife or husband can compel each other to move to Israel. So, Tana Rabbana, always better to live in Israel. Even if most of the people in the, sound, in the town are non-Jews. Don't better not to live in, outside of Israel. Even if you live in a town where most people are Jewish. That's considered that you have a God. Someone who lives outside Israel, it's considered as if you don't have a God. I'm giving you the land of Canaan to be a God to you. So the Pasuk seems to be saying that Hashem's presence, you feel like you have a commitment, connection to Hashem more in Israel. Is that really true? That God is not outside of Israel? What does that mean? God is everywhere. Anyone who dies outside of Israel, it's as if you're worshiping idols, meaning God is there, but you're going to be connected to other things as well. That's the concept. I've been driven away on this day from attaching myself to the Nachla of Hashem. As if to say, go do other idols. Who told David to go worship idols? David was never told to worship idols. David was told to live outside of Israel. But what does that have to do with idols? So David was saying, I was like being tempted to go live outside of Israel, which is tantamount to doing Avodah Zarah. So there we see this idea that it's like Avodah Zarah to live outside of Israel.